0: Good morning. Uh, as always, uh, a joy to be together with, with God's people in, in worship. And I just want to thank everyone for, for really just sort of bearing with us through this, this whole project and uh, having the, the, the plastic tent in the back. Um, and in some ways, I think we should really just embrace this time because it's probably the closest thing that we Lutherans are ever going to get to holding a tent revival. Um, LAUGHTER so, so we should just, you know, we should just really lean in. And so, I'm hoping to maybe hear a few preach it brothers uh, today. Um, Amen. Um, <laughs> thank you, thank you for that. Um, as we uh, we are now uh, kind of getting toward to the end of, of summertime, and and I know uh, our school is is looking to go back this fall. And this whole summer, we we've spent. Uh, pretty much the whole thing uh, preaching through the book of Romans. So we've really kind of been rooting ourselves uh, in the New Testament, and particularly uh, Paul's writing and and Paul's thinking. And uh, and so what we want to do is we're going to kind of shift gears uh, in a way, and and we're going to be taking a step back and actually spending the whole month of September uh, kind of plugging through the Old Testament a little bit. And specifically what we're going to do uh, over the next... uh, Four weeks, five weeks, I guess, including today, as we're going to take a look at, at these major promises and covenants that God makes with his people. And, and as we do that, I hope one of the things that, that you begin to see is that sometimes the way that we approach the scriptures is, is maybe a, a little bit broken. I know if you're like me, that, that maybe you, you kind of grew up thinking that, oh, well, the Old Testament, that is about. The law. The Old Testament is all about this, this God of wrath and this God of anger and this God of judgment. And, and it's the New Testament, that's where it's at for us. Because in the New Testament we have Jesus and, and we have the gospel and it's plain and it's clear and, and it's explicit. But you see, I think as we kind of walk through the Old Testament and what we see is we see this God who continues to pursue his wayward people. We see a God who who makes promise after promise to to lost and broken people like us. And it's really in the pages of the Old Testament and God's story with his people, Israel, that what he planned to do in Jesus begins to take shape. And we see in these promises what the gospel is really about. And the first promise that, that we pick up comes immediately after sin enters the picture. Uh, this this promise is often referred to as the proto Evangelion, the, the first gospel, that, that it's here that, that we f- see this, this first picture of what God is going to do to rescue and redeem the world. And I have to say, this is one of my favorite texts in all of Scripture, uh, not because I delight in, in reading about our fall into sin as humanity, but because I just think that there is so much depth here to God's word to us. There's so much depth in what these scriptures say to us, and they speak so profoundly to us today, especially when we think about the fact that these were written over 3,000 years ago. But we should come to expect no less from, from God's word to us. And so this comes to us right after God has made the heavens and the earth, that He's made creation, and He's filled it with His creatures. And then in chapter 2, God creates man from the dust of the earth, and He creates woman as His perfect companion from His side. And God places them in the garden, and we're told that they're put in the garden to work it and to serve it. We get the sense that, that the creation of man and woman... It is for them to to exercise God's rule and dominion over the over the earth, not by exploiting it, but by caring for it. But then it's in chapter three that we're introduced to this new character. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? ...for food, and it it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So here we're, we're introduced to this serpent... And the text says that the serpent was more crafty than, than all of the other beasts of the field that God had made. And now there's an interesting thing that nowhere in this text and, and actually nowhere in the Old Testament is the serpent associated with the devil. Nowhere in this text or nowhere in the Old Testament is the serpent associated with sort of some kind of supernatural evil. And we just read the text and it just simply says the serpent and leaves it at that. But at the same time as we jump ahead to the New Testament as you read Paul in Romans 16 he speaks pretty clearly that the serpent is Satan, the adversary of God. If you look at Revelation chapter 12 and chapter 20 St. John there refers to Satan, the adversary, the devil as that ancient serpent. So the New Testament writers seem to have no problem with associating this character with the devil. And so I think that perhaps neither should we. But that doesn't somehow get us off the hook here. That, that we see here that yes, sin and evil is a force, a power out there, outside of ourselves, greater than just us. But we also see that sin and evil is something that emanates from the human heart and idolatrous desire. And both of these things are true. Just because this temptation is brought about by the enemy who questions the word of God does not mean that we are somehow not complicit in sin. So Adam and Eve, they're, they're led into temptation that led into this temptation to, to be like God, knowing good and evil. And immediately as they fall into temptation, their idolatry and sin, it leads them to fear. It leads them to guilt and shame. They feel like their bodies are something that they have to hide, and so they seek to cover themselves. They seek to hide from God. But you notice that as soon as Adam and Eve begin to try to hide from God, what does God do? He begins to go and search. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. And I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. You notice that as God pursues them and he asks, have you done what I, what I think you've done? Yeah. Adam and Eve, they they immediately begin to try to shift blame. The woman, the woman you gave me. It was her. She she gave it to me and I ate. The serpent, it was the serpent's fault. The devil made me do it. He deceived me and I ate. This is a continued attempt to, to try to hide from the reality of sin. And this is still kind of our mode of operation, isn't it? That when we're confronted with sin, when we're confronted with our brokenness, when we're confronted with the darkness that emanates from our heart, we try to shift blame, we try to hide, we try to point the finger. All the while, what we really need to do in order to find healing from it is confront it, acknowledge it, and repent of it. And so you notice then how God responds to the sin that has now entered his good and perfect creation. He says this. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it, of God's judgment and, and wrath upon creation. Because we often think about judgment and wrath as for a, sort of like God adding some sort of problem to creation. But, but if you look at what God says here, what he simply does is he gives his creation over to their choices. Say, if that's what you want, here you go. And you will reap the fruit of your sinful and idolatrous choices. Says to the serpent, if that's what you want, if you want to live as the accuser, if you want to live as the adversary. If you want to live in opposition to my word, then on your belly you will go and you'll eat the dust of the earth. There will be nothing but strife between you and mankind. And ultimately your head will be crushed. It says to the woman, if that's what you want, if you want to be Lord over all creation, if you want to hold the knowledge of good and evil, okay, here, you can have that. And as you create and and procreate, you'll do so in in pain and anguish as you bring forth children. And that relationship between you and your, your husband, that was supposed to be a partnership, one of protection, will now be one of strife and competition. To the man, he says, if that's what you want... If you want to stand in the place of God, if you want to hold that knowledge, if you want to be Lord over creation, you can have that. And your work will be nothing but labor and pain. And as you try to provide, you will do so by the sweat of your brow. You'll discover that you are nothing but dust, and it's going to be to to death and dust That you will return. If that's what you want. You can have that. God here very simply. He hands the man and the woman and the serpent. Over to their choices. Over to their sin. If that's what you want. Take it. And and I think we actually. We see this picture of sin. And this picture of the wrath of God. All over scripture. You look at Exodus, and you look at the character of Pharaoh, and as God sends Moses to Pharaoh, who has enslaved the people of God, God continually says through Moses, Let my people go. Let them go so they can come worship me. And time and time again, God says plague after plague, and Pharaoh says, No, I won't let them go. And we see what almost becomes this refrain through the first several plagues where it says the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. It said Pharaoh hardened his heart, he hardened his heart, he hardened his heart. He opposes the ways of God and eventually, plague number six, the scripture says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Is the scripture saying to us that, that God somehow sort of kind of worked for Pharaoh to resist his will outside of his own choices, outside of his own will? I don't think so. I think it's saying very simply, if that's what you want, if you want to live in opposition to my will, you can have that and you will reap the consequences of that choice. If you want to harden your heart to my ways, then I will help you right along with it. Or 2 Samuel chapter 11, we see David's sin with Bathsheba. And we see this this snowball, and and you almost get this picture that, that David is just being consumed by this sin. First, the lust of the eyes turns into idolatry as he takes Uriah's wife And then idolatry just simply multiplies into murder. As he tries to cover up his sin, he ends up having Uriah killed in battle. Martin Luther goes so far to say, as when this happened, when David is confronted by the prophet Nathan, that David actually had to be reconverted. That David entered into lostness in this sin. We see in in Psalm 51, David's cry, David's prayer of repentance is, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew that right spirit within me. Cast me not away with your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. God, don't just hand me over to this sin any longer. And still today, the shape of God's wrath that we experience... It's simply God handing us over to those wicked and idolatrous choices. We actually see Romans 1, Paul, he talks about this very thing, and he speaks of it as the wrath of God that is being revealed from heaven upon all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And as Paul speaks of what that wrath is, he says three times, he says, and God gave them up. God gives them up to their sins. He, he gives them up to the passions of their heart. He gives them up to their wickedness. He gives them up to their, their debased and, and wicked, depraved minds and thoughts. What does the wrath of God look like? It looks like God saying, if that's what you want, you can have it. And we still experience it today that God, he honors Those foolish choices. You want to worship your career... at the expense of of your spouse and your family? Okay. If that's what you want, you can have that. If you want to worship sex and pleasure... and find fulfillment in partner after partner... or, or try to seek it at a computer screen... okay, if that's what you want... You can have that. If you want to seek riches at the expense of of human life and exploit other people and exploit creation all for your own benefit, if that's what you really want, God will grant you that. You know, we often speak of of sin as, as an offense against God, and it is that. God despises sin. But just as much as our sin is an offense against God, I think sin is an offense against ourselves. It rips us apart. It rips our humanity to shreds. It ruins us. A a preacher that I often listen to, he he put it this way. He says, you know, we often think of, of hell as something that is then and there. One day. But hell is just as much here and now as it is then and there. When we choose sin, when when we reject God's ways and what he wants for us and for his creation, we bring the experience of hell right here into the present. And the wrath of God simply takes the shape of him saying, if that's what you really want, you can have that. But you know, sometimes what I think we do is when we speak of of the weight of sin and and we speak of God's wrath and his judgment upon sin, we sort of make God out to be this, this angry, harsh, impartial judge whose only concern is enforcing the letter of the law. Now, God's judgments are certainly true. And, and he is certainly just. And what he says is certain and eternal. But God, as, as the scriptures speak of him, he is not some distant, impartial judge. If you read Genesis chapter 6, just, just a few chapters after man's fall into sin. It says that, that God looked upon creation, and he sees that the only intent of man's heart was wickedness all the time. And and the scriptures, it tells us that God looks upon the state of creation, he looks and sees the way that wickedness has just given birth to more and more wickedness, And, and that this good creation that he loves has just been utterly corrupt. And it says that he regretted man, and it grieved him To his heart. That God looks upon sin and it fills him with pain. That God is not just this distant impartial judge who just wants to enforce the law. No, when God sees sin, when he sees wickedness, that curse on creation, it falls on him. And God's desire is actually to rescue us from that. His desire is to crush the head of the serpent. His desire is that sin and the curse would no longer strangle his creation. Because this is what the cross of Jesus is about. The cross of Jesus is God's way of putting humanity back together. That the the cross, yes, it is about clearing us of of cosmic guilt, but it is about that and so much more. The, The cross is the way that God deals with sin, where He places the curse upon creation and He takes it into Himself in Jesus so that we could be set free from it. Well, on the cross what Jesus is doing is he is drinking the cup of hell so that it would be drained for you and me 2 Corinthians chapter 5 God says Paul says through or God says through Paul that in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses not counting their sins against them. God's intention was never just to leave us under the curse of sin, never intended just to give us over to those choices eternally. But actually, I believe that even in that curse, even in that wrath, God is and was pursuing us because it's in reaping the fruit of those choices that causes us to long for his redemption. When we experience the consequences of sin, it causes us to see that that fulfillment is not found down that path. At the curse of sin, it causes us to turn and, and long for God to be our rescuer. And it's in Jesus that that rescue is found it's in Jesus that we see the redemption that he offers to us. When your life is in the pit, he calls you, reach out, cling to that cross by faith, because he wants to put you back together. You know, I think when it's, when it's all said and done, there's really ultimately two ways for us to respond to the curse of sin. We could keep trying to run and hide. We could keep trying to cover our our guilt and our shame and our fear. We we could try to cover it with our works. We could try to run from it by just sort of giving ourselves over to, to desires and lawlessness. Or we can quite simply repent and believe the gospel. We can repent and and, and turn from that sin and turn back to the God whose desire has always been to rescue us from the curse. We can repent and believe and cling to Jesus and, and look to Him for that rescue. Look to Him for that redemption. Because it's in Jesus and it's in His cross that God is putting humanity back together. Amen.